this time next week, we are either going to be in the first waves of tides of revival moving in in our midst, or we're just going to be having a church service. And a lot of that depends on what we do in these days leading up to it. And not only praying for revival, but praying first and foremost for our own lives and for our own personal revival. There have been many nights that will forever be etched in many of our minds of God doing incredible things at these altars where people have come to a point where they've not worried about what anybody thought or what anybody said and they just decided that getting right with God was more important than even good people's opinions of themselves. This time next week we'll either be a church that God can trust with a new fresh move and anointing and presence of his Holy Spirit or we will be a church that may cause God to ask the question can I trust them with another move we have gotten close on numerous occasions we have even seen moments when God has extended the days of refresh one year we extended it for a week and it was just a week to pray but we have yet to see what revival historians would call a real revival we have seen mercy drops but we've not seen showers My friend Bill Eliff, who is Tom's brother, pastors the Summit Church in Little Rock. A few months ago, they started a meeting that lasted eight weeks every night for eight weeks. Now I'm talking to the choir here, but I don't know as good as we think we are if we're the kind of church that God could trust with an eight-week meeting. Because I think we got a whole lot more stuff that we think about beyond that. Let me tell you how significant that revival was. The Summit Church basically started years ago splitting off of another church without their blessing. And in the midst of that revival, God began to convict Bill and the leadership that they needed to go back to that church and ask for forgiveness. 20 years old. And I'm sure there are people saying, that's been so long, people don't even know about it. But God knew. That's right. And they had a service where those two churches got together on a Sunday morning and met and asked for forgiveness for hard feelings, for bitter spirits, for bad attitudes for unforgiveness and God began to do a great work Bill said to me when I was at Life Action a few weeks ago he said you know Michael he said 
if God had done in every church in Little Rock just what he did in the Summit Church in those eight weeks, we would have had 38,000 people in Little Rock saved in eight weeks. That's what revival looks like. And I don't want us to miss it. I don't want to miss it. I believe that the men that are coming are the men that God wants us to have here. Uh, I got an email from one of them yesterday saying, I believe that God's given me a specific word on why revival is hindered in the church today. And so I don't want us to miss this. But the greater thing is, I, I know most of you are going to be here. My greater worry is all the people that fill these seats up here. They're going to miss it. Because other things are more important to them than revival. And can I tell you, on the anniversary of 9-11, it's the only hope we've got. That's right. That's right. If we haven't realized at this point in America that revival is the only hope we've got, then we're in greater danger than we think we are. Because we can't fix what is wrong with America. We can't print enough money. We can't start enough agencies. We can't do enough stimulus programs. We can't fix what is basically wrong with this country, and it's spiritual. That's right. It's not economic. That's just a symptom of what's really wrong. And so I'm asking you to help me, to help impress on the lives of people that you influence that this is serious business. Stephen mentioned earlier about the circus coming to town. Can you imagine that there would be a member of Sherwood Baptist Church knowing what God has done at Refresh in the past that would even have the thought click in their mind for one millisecond, but my kids want to go to the circus. But they will. And what they will say by that action and by that choice to a holy God who died on a cross for them is going in circles is more important to my family than finding the presence of God. Now they would never vocalize it that way, but that's what they're saying. Now, that's the prophet in me and I'm saying it as a nice prophet. But here's the thing you've got to understand. You're sitting in Sunday school classes with people that are making bad choices. They're making choices that are putting them on a path to one day they won't even darken the door of the church, much less be here on Sunday mornings. Because once you take a detour, you begin to miss the things that God has for you along the way. And when you get started on that detour and start justifying things that should be put under the grace of Christ and the blood of Christ, and you start justifying that on behalf of this is what I want, at some point, God as a gentleman begins to say, fine, I'll let you have what you want. And you'll have to live with the results of it. The worst thing God could give me is what I want sometimes. And we need to, in these days, leading up in prayer, 
have more people in here praying than we've ever had before. And we need to bombard heaven because we don't know how long we've got. We don't, this could be the last refresh conference. I mean, I don't assume anything. This could be the last one. This could be the test for us. As happened with Fireproof, we don't talk about the movies during the time of refresh because we figure our responsibility is to get right with God and God's responsibility is to do what he's going to do with that which is out of our hands. Amen. And all of that is out of our hands. But why would God entrust us with favor if we won't trust him with four days? So I'm asking you to be bold with your friends and with people that you influence. To say these are not days that are optional for us. The times are too critical. And these days are not optional. They can't be optional for us. Because people's lives are going to be changed. Families are going to be impacted. Some of these cards here at the altar, we're going to see answered prayers this next week even before refresh starts. I can tell you I know a little bit about what the guys are going to do that are coming. And I believe these messages are going to be incredibly timely. They're all fresh. And they're, they've sought the Lord. And they've prayed about it. And I've had lengthy conversations with them about where they sense God is leading them to go and what he's leading them to do and I believe that God's got something he wants to do in our midst I know I need it I know I'm, uh, refresh may be just for me this year but I need it but I think all of us would admit we need it because reality is refresh sets the tone for this church for a year what happens in this place in those four days literally sets the tone for everything we do for the next 11 months. What God can trust us with, how God pours out his spirit, the kind of ministries we get involved in, it affects everything about what we do. And so as you come, come to give, come to pray, come to serve, come to minister. We've got, I think, about 40 pastors from around the country that are coming here that will be our guest next week and we just don't want to be a friendly church we want them to walk away and say one thing nice people but what I really sensed there was the presence of God Amen. because we could be friendly and not have the presence of God but what I want folks to sense is the presence of God and the enemy is going to do everything he can to stop you to stop me to stop it and so that's where we're going to look tonight in 2 Timothy is how to stop enemy infiltration. This is the first part. This is really the introduction um, to the next message out of this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And can I tell you that the enemy is not picky about who he uses to infiltrate? He looks for any way, any person, any open window, any crack door, any crack in the foundation, any attitude that he can use that can somehow put us off track. 
A traitor is defined by the law as one who commits treason. Treason is aiding an enemy of the United States. When you mention the name Benedict Arnold, it is a byword in American history of betrayal. Aaron Burr conspired to create his own empire. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed for spying for the Soviet Union. Alger Hiss spent his life from the 1950s until he died in 1996 trying to clear his name from charges of espionage. Just in the last few years, Soviet spies embedded in the United States have been deported from this country. Unnamed sources, I love that term, unnamed sources have threatened national security. By the way, let me just take a little detour right here. Unnamed sources in the, this is what unnamed sources means in the church. People are concerned. I hear there are some folks that are upset. If you can't name them, and if they won't name themselves, don't listen to them. Unnamed sources can kill a Christian school and they can kill a church. Unnamed sources have caused havoc in the United States. Jane Fonda, who looks good at 70, but she called United States soldiers in Vietnam war criminals. Robert Hansen, a former FBI agent who spied for the Soviet and Russian intelligence from 1979 to 2001 leaked to Russia the names of every KGB agent who had any contact with the FBI. We're all familiar with Major Hansen, who shot and killed 13 people at Fort Hood and wounded 30 others. The founder of WikiLeaks. Now, boy, if there is ever a name that fit an organization has disseminated classified documents under the guise of the people have a right to know. These are traitorous actions. They're enemy infiltration into the nation. But the enemy tries to infiltrate into the church, and so when Paul writes to Timothy, he's talking about how to stop the enemy from getting in and undermining and destroying or bringing decay into the life of the church. And so in chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, remind them, those that Timothy has charge over, of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, Men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. 
Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, there are three things here. First of all is the soldier's ambition. The soldier's ambition. He is not to be ashamed. If I'm a soldier of the cross, the thing that I don't want to do is I don't want to be ashamed, and I don't want to bring shame to the cross of Jesus Christ. Secondly, there's the soldier's ability to accurately handle the Word of God is what Paul says here. We have a weapon at our disposal. It's the sword of the Spirit. It is our offensive weapon. And just like a soldier can blindfold it, take apart a rifle and put it back together, and he knows how to accurately handle that weapon. So even with a crowd of people around him, he knows that he's not going to shoot somebody else because he knows what to do with it. We are to accurately handle the Word of God. And then there's the soldier's acceptance, approved of God. Approved of God. Hanging in a room in our house are some of the medals that my father won when he was uh, and earned when he was in the military in World War II. When a soldier is honorably discharged, when as I've sat in the retirement of two Marines in this church and listened to the letters read from the President of the United States and from others. It has been on the basis that they have served well and they have served honorably their country and they have taken seriously their oath as soldiers to defend the Constitution. And so Paul is commanding Timothy to follow strict orders and in, in, he gives three metaphors here. He talks about a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, about a clean vessel that is honorable. So he's using these pictures to help us to see what we're supposed to be. So there's a workman, a clean vessel, and the Lord's bondservant. The Lord's bondservant. We cannot play war games because the enemy is trying to find ways to get in every day, every moment, every second that you live, whether you're here or not, whether you are in a service or not, whether it's in the middle of the day on Monday, there are demonic and evil forces of this world that are strategizing every way they can to bring shame to the gospel through you, through me, and through this church. To undermine the life and ministry of this church. To make this church like many other churches that were once great and once strong. But when you drive by them now, the community knows, oh, there's a church that fights and fusses. There's a church where they argue. There's a church where they run off pastor after pastor. There's a, and you know the drill. And all that means is that the enemy took a church down. Now the scripture says that according to the power that is within us, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. But it seems to me that the church is not on the offensive, it's on the defensive, and we ought to be on the offensive. And we, we have to be the kind of soldiers that are ready for this battle. Because the enemy's trying to take us down. If you were here the other night with Josh McDowell, and if you were in the leadership meeting, and you heard the statistics that he shared, and you heard what he did in that first session, you understand the battle that we are in. 
And if you want to think about this battle and about the damage that can be done, it can be done by things like making a minor thing into a major thing. I've told you about the pastor that I know that literally all hell began to break loose on him because he painted the fellowship hall without the approval of the wife of the biggest giver in the church. Now, you think I make that stuff up. Listen, I'm going to write a book when I retire on stuff I couldn't make up, but I knew as a pastor. And it's, it's going to read like a farce, except it's all true. You heard growing up, we've heard growing up all our lives about churches split up about which side the piano is going to be on and what the color of the carpet is. Insane things, majoring on minor things, senseless controversies, a lack of discernment. And one of the things that amazes me is the lack of discernment in the church today that we wrangle over words about words, that we split hairs. I, I wish you could read some of the responses I get on Twitter. They're really interesting. I'm surprised that people have that much time to even respond to me like I've got anything that I'm making an impact with in that. But uh, there's a blogger out there right now that's after me and uh, two or three people on Twitter that are after me. And this is why they're after me. And they're after us. Because Catholics are using our movies. That's it. Because Catholics are using our movies. I mean, they just, uh, you know, uh, one guy said, Michael Catt is a pastor full of error and heresy. Now, he's never called me and told me that, but he put it out on the World Wide Web. You know, I, I don't care who uses the movie because ultimately the gospel's in it. And so as long as the gospel is in it, you could split hairs over some Catholic theology. I understand that, and I have, I, I, listen, I understand, okay? I get it. But when you're talking about something that's caused men to be men, which the Catholic Church needs, and dads to be dads, and fathers to be role models, and men to share the gospel, I don't know why we would have a problem with that. Wrangling over words. Don't get sidetracked by major issues because first thing I want to do is I want to answer all those people. I just told you what I thought. I'll let them deal with it themselves. Then he says, rightly dividing. The word is better translated accurately handling. It, it's used only three times in Scripture uh, this little phrase, rightly dividing or accurately handling the Word of God, it's used here and in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, and in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 5. And it means literally to cut straight. To cut straight. Now, there are about five different ways this word is pictured. You can kind of pick the one that works the best for you. One is, it is pictured as cutting a sacrificial animal according to the Levitical law. 
A second way is cutting up land into sections where you have boundaries and property lines and accurately doing it so that you don't cross over on somebody else's property. You cut the property line the way it's supposed to be cut. A third way is cutting a stone to fit into a building. But most likely what Paul meant by the use of this term is cutting a straight road. And he would have been writing in the context of the Romans who built the straightest and fastest roads they could build so that their armies could march quickly through mountains, not over them or around them, so they would cut through. It is a picture of a straight road or, for you ladies, it is cutting a piece of cloth according to a pattern. Now, my mother was a seamstress. She sewed. In fact, she made a suit for me one time. Actually, you know, weird-looking suit, but it, you know, it fit. I mean, but when you make something with a pattern, ladies, you know you lay it out on a board and you cut the material out according to the pattern or else it doesn't work. And so what Paul is saying here is that God has a design, God has a pattern, God has a path, and we are to follow accurately that path, that pattern, that design, and not waver from it, because when we do, we begin to fall into wrangling over words and error and possible heresy. One of the things that I think is happening with the proliferation of podcast and television and radio and everything else, is you get a lot of people with Bibles who are making it up as they go. They're not students. They're not studying. They're not accurately handling the Word of God. Now, here's one thing I hope you know about me. You may not like everything I say, but one thing you know, I believe what I say. <laughs> And I try to accurately handle the Word of God. It may not make you comfortable. Sometimes it doesn't make me comfortable. But I want to accurately handle the Scriptures because ultimately I stand before a holy God to give an account for every person in this room in what I have taught, in what I have preached, and what I have said that the Scriptures stand for. And I take that very seriously. And so I'm going to compare Scripture with Scripture, and I'm going to study it so that as best I understand it with my feeble capacity to understand that I can accurately handle the Word of God. Now, the damage of not doing that and of going into false teaching is twofold. First of all, it is ungodly. It is ungodly. It advances in the wrong direction. It takes a detour. It goes off track. It is ungodly. Secondly, Paul says, it's like gangrene. It poisons and infects the system, the body of Christ. And so this ungodly gangrene type of teaching has to be dealt with. And so he says in verse 15, be diligent or be persistent. And in verse 16, he says, avoid that word avoid is the word we get our word catastrophe from. So when you see that word avoid, you just write down catastrophe. Because to not avoid these things leads to a catastrophe. Any teaching 
that takes us off the path of Jesus Christ ultimately leads to a doctrinal catastrophe. We need to beware of fighting about every little issue. We need to contend with error, and we need to communicate the gospel clearly. That's a twofold call for each of us. As soldiers of the cross, we are to contend. We're to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we are to communicate clearly what we believe and why we believe it. Because everything is at stake in what we pass on to the next generation about what the gospel is. And the gospel wasn't invented when radio and television was invented. It came into being in the garden when God provided a covering for Adam and Eve and blood was spilt. And it was a picture that one day God would send a sacrifice to cover your sins and to cover my sins. There are two kinds of of ministries according to this there are those that are approved and those that are unapproved those that are approved accurately handle the word of god those that are unapproved have worldly empty chatter just a bunch of nonsense i sat at a table in fact, uh, the Kendricks were there, and Jim and Sheila were there, and we sat at a table a couple of weeks ago talking to some folks that we dearly love. And uh, the wife first got in a conversation with Stephen, and then I got involved in the conversation because Stephen turned to me and said, why don't you tell them what you think about it? And you did. And I did, because <laughs> I'm just a nice guy. But here's what, here's what the lady said. She said, my pastor last week did nothing but make announcements for 30 minutes. He announced we got to have coaches for this and we need people to do this and we need folks to help in this and everything. And he said, every, she said every now and then he'd weave in. Now next week I've got a great sermon. But she said some weeks he's right on target and some weeks it's just announcements and it's just kind of whatever. And I said, you need to get in a church where the word of God's being preached. His responsibility is to have a word from God every Sunday when he stands up there. His responsibility is not to read the bulletin to you. It's to preach the word of God. That's empty chatter. Because the truth of the matter is, we could miss all the announcements, but the most important thing is if a lost person walks into this room looking for Christ, they find him. That's what's got to be communicated. Secondly, there can be one who cuts it straight and the other one who goes astray. And then you've got Timothy as the one who is approved. Minius and Philetus who are those who are unapproved. And can I tell you that in every church, somebody will rise up who will try to swerve the church into what they think or what they feel. The word gone astray is a word from archery. And it is a word picture of an archer who is pulling the bow back, but he totally misses the target. He doesn't just miss the bullseye. He misses the whole target. He's gone astray. He's off the mark. And... 
can I tell you why it is so important for us to be this kind of church and to be these kind of soldiers? Because the media loves those who go astray. It, now, if, if God would just let me be in charge of the media in America for five minutes, I could fix all this. I would never, ever give one minute, one second of airtime to some knucklehead pastor and his people who go and picket at the funerals of soldiers. Never would I do that. I would never give one minute of airtime to a knucklehead pastor in Florida who wants to burn the Koran just so he can have his 15 minutes of fame. But the media loves it. I mean, they see that. But I want to tell you something. Nobody's come and interviewed me about, do you preach through the Bible? <laughs> I've never had a news story written about me preaching through the Word of God or preaching through the Bible. Nobody came out here and did a cover on us when I went through all 66 books in 13 weeks. Nobody said, that's newsworthy. No, you see, the truth isn't newsworthy. That's why it needs to be proclaimed in every church. Because the news is never going to proclaim the truth. They're going to proclaim what they want you to think the truth is. There's no longer much objective journalism. Truth is in the eyes of the beholder. That's the way the world looks at it. But my word says this is the book of truth. And it's not according to how I behold it. It's what God says. And it's not up to me to redefine it or decide that it doesn't fit in this day and age. He says it's gone astray. Now let me just ask you to turn just a couple of pages because that little phrase, gone astray, is translated a little differently, but it is the same word in, it's used three times in the pastoral epistles. It's used here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 18, then it's used in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Turn there if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Gone astray. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. There you go with that empty chatter again. Look at chapter 6 and verse 20. Now, these are the only three times this word is used, and it's they're all used with Paul telling Timothy about what needs to happen in training the next generation of soldiers. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Stand watch, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Do any of you, have, any of you ever remember this guy that's on TV? Now his, his wife or his daughter, somebody's on TV. You just see him late at night. You ever, any of you ever remember this guy, uh, Gene Scott? He used to be on TV. He'd sit there and smoke a big old cigar, have a hat on, 
and he'd talk theology. He was as wacko as the day is long. And he'd be on there, and he'd, and now his wife or whoever it is, she's got all these charts that she draws out. And I mean, I just sit there and look at it for about five minutes and said, those people are nuts. I think he had more than cigars inside that cigar. He had been smoking something a long time, and his brain cells were a little out of whack. But you know that guy took in eight to ten million dollars a year from people that believed his messed up mind? Why? Because he would quote Greek words. Now you take them all out of context. And sometimes he would get the tense of the word wrong, and sometimes he would actually get the Greek word wrong. But that didn't matter. He sounded intelligent. And after all, it did say on the bottom of the screen, Dr. Gene Scott. So, I mean, if he's got a doctorate, and he's got a chart, and he's got a, 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 a magic marker, I mean, he must be smart. Gone astray. You see, the word is a target, and the word is the road. And so we are to stand firm on the Word of God. Let me, let me just kind of wrap this up because of time. We are not here to win arguments. We are here to win people to Christ. And there are a lot of theological discussions that are very interesting within the confines of a seminary class. But they really don't make any sense to somebody that's trying to figure out how to talk to their prodigal. What they need is Jesus. They don't understand all the terms and all the dynamics and all the dimensions and all the other things. And just let me go there for a minute, okay? When I go into a restaurant in town and I see a moving billboard and on that moving billboard on a TV it says Calvinism is the gospel, I cringe because it implies that a doctrinal position can get me into heaven. Can I tell you something, folks? Jesus is the gospel. John Calvin can't save you. In fact, Calvin wouldn't even believe with some of the people that put that statement up there. Calvinism is not the gospel. Arminian is not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And when you and I begin to divide and wrangle and argue over those things, the one question I have to ask is always this. What are you doing to lead people to Jesus. I don't care if you've read the Nicene Fathers, the anti-Nicene Fathers, the early church fathers, the all, you know all the creeds and you know everything and you can quote it verbatim. I don't care. What I want to know is when a person is in a ditch, do you walk by on the other side continuing to have your theological discussion or do you stop and minister to the hurting and the lost? Because Jesus did not say pure and undefiled religion is to have a doctrinal debate. He said pure and undefiled religion is how you deal with widows and orphans. 
Baptists have a Reformed background. But I want you to know the Baptist Reformed background was the most missional of any denomination on the face of the earth. It was a belief in the gospel that demanded that we fulfill the Great Commission and go into all the world with the gospel. And any gospel that says, I don't have to do anything to share my faith, it's up to God to save the lost, is not what Jesus said in the Great Commission. It's tearing the Great Commission out of the Bible. Now, you don't have to agree with me. You can be wrong. (laughs) But here's what I know. The Lord knows that are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness in a different context. That is divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible is full of that. The Bible is full of God's divine sovereignty, and it is full of man's responsibility to act in light of his sovereignty. You realize that the person that started Evangelism Explosion was a Presbyterian? James Kennedy, Presbyterians who believe in sovereignty of God are Calvinists and they believe in predestination and election. And he started Evangelism Explosion. You know why? Because he realized people were lost and needed to hear the gospel. Of course, my favorite story of James Kennedy was when he went knocking on the door. He said, the first time God began to convict me about sharing the gospel with people, I knocked on the door. This guy came to the door. He's six foot four. He weighed about 280 pounds, had a cigar in one hand, had a beer in the other one. I looked at him and said, he's not one of the elect. (laughs) He said, you know, I had a problem with sharing the gospel. He said, it was this big yellow streak right down the middle of my back. You see, God is the one who saves. End of discussion. You haven't saved anybody. I haven't saved anybody. This church hasn't saved anybody. God alone saves. But it is man's responsibility to respond to the gospel that is presented to him. I'm not responsible For the fruit, I am responsible to plant the seed. So as a soldier, if I want to take ground from the enemy, guess what I do? I preach the gospel. I teach the gospel. I live the gospel. I do what Paul says, that we abstain from wickedness. What is it that keeps the gospel from spreading? I'll tell you one of the things that keeps the gospel from gospel from spreading is too many lost people know too many people who call themselves Christians who aren't any different than lost people that stops it from spreading I mean if we're like them then why do they need to become like us but you see divine sovereignty says God every changed life is a result of your sending your son to die But every step of taking the gospel to the world is our responsibility. You say, well, God can save without us. Yes, he can. He certainly can. And he has done that before. 
But I would submit to you that God has said to us clearly, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I would say to those who want to stand around and debate theology and pick theological lint out of each other's navels, I would say to them what the angels said when the Lord ascended in Acts chapter 1. Why do you stand here and gaze? Go do what he told you to do. Because one day he's coming back. I asked a friend of mine who may be one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. I mean, he's unbelievably brilliant. He's a strong Calvinist, but he's, he's, a, good, he's a good one. I said, what does it mean to share the gospel to you? And he said, it means to go anywhere and everywhere and at every opportunity share with everyone that you possibly can that Jesus Christ is the only hope for their life. That's the gospel. And you know what? That doesn't have a label of Calvin or Arminian, Wesleyan or anything else. It is the revelation of what happened to Martin Luther. The just shall live by faith. It is by grace that you are saved, not of your works, lest any man should boast. It's all of God. But for me to get through the doors of heaven, I had to make a decision one day. Now, you can call it free will or you can call it human responsibility. I, I, I tend to want to call it more human responsibility. But every person has a choice to make about what to do about Jesus Christ. Every person does. And every time we have an opportunity, and every time we're given it, we should seize it. And I must say to you that there have been way, 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 way too many times in my life when I've left it to somebody else to do. In fact, a lot of us as Christians are really practicing a theology that says if God wants the lost saved, he can save them himself. Because when we don't do what we know we're supposed to do, we are in fact saying, I'm not going to be involved in that. And yet all of us have to be involved in it. Even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when we're a little unsure, because the one thing that a lost person cannot argue with is a changed life. They can argue and say, well, I don't like Sherwood Baptist Church, or I don't like big churches, or I don't like Baptists, or I don't like this, or I don't like, they can argue with all that kind of stuff, but the one thing nobody can argue with is when they see somebody's life that's been changed, and they are different because of the gospel. 
And every time we don't do what we're supposed to do, the enemy takes ground that God has called us to take. Would you stand with me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. While you're standing there with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want you to get a little picture in your mind here. I want you to think about a train track. A train track, tracks run parallel to each other. If a train goes off the track, it crashes. If a train would try to run on one track, on one rail, it would derail. If you try to get the two tracks to come closer and closer together, the train will derail. It'll go off the track. But if you look down the track and take a long look, the further you look down a train track, it looks like, and perception is, that the two tracks, although they're running parallel and they never change from that, it looks like those two tracks come together as one. And that's what divine sovereignty and human responsibility is about. There are two sides of a coin. And man is responsible. Or as Spurgeon said, on the gates of heaven, on one side is written, whosoever will may come. And when you turn around and get inside heaven and you look back toward the gate that you just walked through, it says, chosen before the foundation of the earth.